Amen. You may be seated. As you're being seated this morning, would you please grab your copy of God's Word and turn with me again to the Gospel of Matthew. So our general pattern here at San Harbor is pick a book of the Bible, start at the beginning, work our way to the end, which means we've been in Matthew for a very, very long time. Uh, And we still have a little bit of ways to go. But we're in Matthew chapter 23 this morning, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 5. Uh, And I'm going to read for us, though, verses 1 through 12. So hear the word of the Lord this morning. Matthew 23, starting in verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, as we come to your word this morning, make us like that blessed man in Psalm 1. Do not let us walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers, but make us as those who delight daily in your word, who meditate upon it. Make us like trees planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in its season, whose leaves do not wither. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before the ages of cell phones and GPS navigation, I was a toddler in a booster seat next to my cousin in my aunt's car. And we were on the street in front of my house, waiting for my mom and my other siblings to pull around the alleyway so that we could follow them to the Mall of America. So I'm, I'm from St. Paul. We, you know, the one claim to fame is that we have the Mecca of materialism next to us, the Mall of America. So we're waiting to follow my mom. She drives a tan Toyota Land Cruiser. And about the time you would expected my mom to be pulling around for us to follow, a Toyota Land Cruiser slowly puttered past us. Same car, different color. And my aunt, forgetting the color of my mom's car, promptly pulled out and began to follow a complete stranger. Now, I I hope that this stranger did not suffer from paranoia because that would have been a very bad day for them as we followed them all over the city. Well, needless to say, we were led to many places by this stranger, but none of them happened to be the one place we were intending to go. So because my aunt was not careful about the specific type of Toyota Land Cruiser, that she was to follow, we were led by the wrong car to all the wrong places. Well, Jesus offers us a similar lesson in our passage. He turns from talking with the religious leaders as they bring question after question to him, try and stump him, to try and bring a charge against him. So he turns from talking with the religious leaders in earshot of the crowds to turning directly to the crowds and speaking about the religious leaders to these crowds. 
And he gives the crowds and his disciples this warning. Be careful who you follow. Be careful who you follow. The wrong shepherd will lead you to the wrong place and influence you with the wrong character. That's his warning. Or you can put it another way directly to us. Jesus warns us, his sheep, against false shepherds so that we would take care who we follow, who we imitate, and even how we lead and influence others. That's the warning. Jesus, the great shepherd, warning his sheep against false shepherds because they will lead you to the wrong place, they will influence you the wrong way, and they'll make you the wrong kind of leaders. So we want to unpack this warning by looking at three characteristics of these false shepherds that Jesus gives us. First, Jesus warns us against these false shepherds because they are all talk and no walk. They talk, but they do not walk according to their talk. Look at verses 2 and 3. The scribes and the Pharisees, they sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe what they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. So the seat of Moses that he refers to would be like the pulpit or lectern of our day. So in every synagogue where you come to hear the word read and taught, there was a specific seat at the center in front of everyone where the Pharisee or the scribe would sit on when he was reading the law of Moses. And then he would read it and he would teach on it. And it was called the seat of Moses, not only because they were teaching from the first five books of the Old Testament that Moses wrote, but because they believed that they were carrying on the authority of Moses in a way by instructing the people in what they needed to know and how they needed to live. So they thought, you know, Moses, he was God's mouthpiece. He led the people in understanding how to walk in the path of God's commandments. And so that's what they thought they were continuing in their own day. Well, interestingly, as Jesus points out the seat of Moses that they sit on, he gives a positive and a negative command regarding how we should view the people who sit on them. Look at verse 3. Do whatever they tell you, positive, but not the works they do, negative. That is to say, listen to their words, but do not imitate their lives. Listen to what they say, but do not imitate their lives. Listen, because the word of God is the word of God, whether it's delivered through the mouth of an angel or through a donkey. And you all know the King James Version translation of a donkey, that Balaam was one of those. Listen, because truth is truth, whether it's served on a silver platter or it's soup in a stinky shoe. Now, we would all prefer the food on the silver platter, but the conduit does not change the nature of the content. Recently, to give an illustration, Many people in the Christian, broader evangelical world were devastated to learn about the double life of a prominent Christian apologist. Well-respected, people looked up to him because he, he spoke with such elegance, he spoke with such clarity, with such conviction, and yet offstage, he was a total contradiction to his message. And when people heard about this, when it was uncovered, it was devastating to them. And yet, the existence of God is not less real because of his double life. The scriptures are not less reliable because of his double life. And the gospel is not less true because of this man's double life. 
He spoke the truth even though he was living a lie. And that's what Jesus is saying the Pharisees were frequently guilty of. Speaking the truth but living a lie. So he says, listen to them. When they speak the word of God, listen to them, even if they should not be imitated. And that's where Jesus goes next. Listen, but do not imitate. Why is that? Because they preach, but do not practice. They are living parables and walking advertisements for hypocrisy, to say one thing and live a completely different way. They are all talk and no walk. And on this point, commentator Matthew Henry, he writes these very convicting words. Listen to this. What greater hypocrisy can there be in a leader of God's people than pulling down in their practice what they build up in their teaching? When in the pulpit, preaching so well that it's a pity that they should ever come out, but when out of the pulpit, living so poorly that it's a pity they should ever go into the pulpit. Character is critical in Christian leadership and in the Christian life. It is not an extra credit assignment of the Christian life. It's not an additional add-on. You you buy a house and you might want bigger cabinets and you might want character in your Christian life. It is essential. It is critical. When Paul is instructing Timothy, who he's going to establish churches in in a different region where Paul's not, he tells him what to look for in elders and deacons, the future leader of the churches. And here's what he says. Well, first, here's what he does not say. Timothy, look at their resume. Timothy, look at their giving. Timothy, look at their diplomas. Look at their personality. Look at their social media following. Of course, he wouldn't say that. This is what he does say. He says, Timothy, look at their character. What are they like in their life? That's what they're to look for. Our character does not make the gospel more or less true. It is objectively true, and we cannot take away from that or add to it. But our character can make the gospel look more or less attractive in the eyes of others in this world. Think of it like lights on an airport runway at night. The lights on the airport runway at night don't change the existence or non-existence of the runway. The runway is there whether the lights are there or not. But at night, those lights being there and being on make it much easier for the plan to land on that runway. So it is with Christian character. It does not make the gospel more or less true, but it does make it more or less attractive in the eyes of the world. And the great test of character is, as one author said, not what we are, when we're standing in the searchlight of public scrutiny, but what we are under the firelight flicker of our own homes. That's a great test of character. It's not what you're like, kids, when your parents are snoopervising and watching over you. It's what you're like when they're gone and there is no parent watching you. That's the true test of your character. It's not what strangers think of you who see you occasionally. It's what those who know you best think of you, who see you frequently. That's the true test of character. I was reading an article on marriage this week, and I came across this this question that stopped me in my tracks. Would you feel comfortable putting your spouse down as a reference on your Christian resume? Would you feel comfortable putting your spouse down as a reference on your Christian resume? Or Or if you were charged with being a Christian, 
Would you feel comfortable calling your spouse as the eyewitness testimony for that? Or put it more generally, would you feel comfortable putting down the person who knows you better than anyone else knows you as a reference on your Christian resume or calling them as an expert witness in your charge of Christianity? A Christianity that is all talk and no walk is like a celebrity who advertises for Coca-Cola on TV but offstage only drinks Pepsi. If you met that person and you said, oh, I, I see you on the Coca-Cola commercial. Don't you just love Coca-Cola? They say, absolutely not. It's disgusting. I only drink Pepsi. You'd probably think twice about drinking Coca-Cola after that. Or it's like, this is a dangerous illustration, but I'm going to use it. It's like a governor who makes rules against eating indoors at restaurants and then is caught later eating indoor at a restaurant during that same edict. You know, the rules for thee but not for me type of thing. That might get you recalled. Okay, I'm, I'm going to stop there. Okay, My wife told me I might have to cut that out, but I, I, I left it in. It should be our desire and our aim to see our lips and our lives wed together in holy matrimony. It should be our goal to make sure that our walk and our talk does not have a great chasm between it, but we slowly seek, by the grace of God, in faithfulness, to bridge the gap between how we live and what we believe. Because we want to adorn the gospel, which has adorned us with every spiritual blessing. The truth of the matter, though, is that we will die unsuccessful in that endeavor. No matter how much you endeavor and strive in that, to bridge the gap between your walk and your talk, you will die unsuccessfully ever putting those two perfectly together, fusing them together. It will never happen. And yet, the true Christian's desire is to say, well then, I will die trying because I want to glorify my God and I want to adorn the gospel. And because we'll never perfectly fuse our walk and our talk together, that means we will never fully escape and be guiltless of the charge of hypocrisy in this life. The question is not if we'll ever be guilty of hypocrisy, but when and how will we respond to that charge. So when the charge of hypocrisy comes, we need to be quick to repent and quick to rest in the righteousness of Christ. Quick to repent and quick to rest in the righteousness of Christ. Nothing diffuses and disarms the charge of hypocrisy like a person who says, you're absolutely right. That behavior was unbecoming of a Christian. There's no excuse for it. Will you please forgive me? There's nothing that diffuses the charge of hypocrisy like that. And nothing prepares a person's heart to be able to repent like that, like a person who knows that Christ is my righteousness, not my reputation, not my public record in the eyes of others. When we know that Christ alone has lived a life free of hypocrisy so that we could be treated as if we had lived a hypocritical free life because he was treated as a hypocrite in our place, we will be able to say, it's not my reputation, but Christ's righteousness on which I stand. Therefore, I am not devastated when the charge of hypocrisy comes against me. I can repent at it. If you believe that your reputation is your righteousness, then anytime you're charged with hypocrisy, you will immediately hire yourself as a defense lawyer and rise to your own defense. And Abraham Lincoln said, he who has himself for a lawyer has a fool for a client. Very wise words. 
But if you grasp that Christ is your righteousness, any charge brought against you will not devastate you and will not infuriate you. Instead, it will humble you because it will remind you afresh once again that you have a great need for Christ and a great Christ for your need. And therefore, it will slowly, as you're humbled through that charge and through that act of repentance, it will actually work to bring your walk and your talk even closer together. The more we realize that there is a great distance between those two things and acknowledge it humbly before the Lord, the more it works and shapes our heart to fuse those two things together. So while false shepherds are marked by all talk and no walk, Christ's sheep are to be marked by seeking to slowly, by God's grace, align our walk with our talk. So that's the first warning he gives us. Secondly, Jesus warns us against these false shepherds because they are all burden and no blessing. So they're all talk and no walk, and then they're all burden and no blessing. Look at verse four. They tie up heavy burdens, which are hard to bear, and then they lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to lift them with their finger. So you've probably heard of this saying, that they wouldn't lift a finger to help. Well, this is where it comes from. That They love to take heavy burdens, lay them on others, and just watch them struggle. They're not willing to help one bit. And there are fewer things more frustrating and annoying in life than a person who is happy to point out an issue or a problem and yet is unwilling to be part of the solution. So, for example, it's like the parent, usually the dad, let's be honest, who smells a stinky diaper somewhere in the house finds the kid with the stinky diaper and then brings it to the wife and says, got a stinky diaper here. I just wanted to let you know. I'll be in my office. That was autobiographical, if you're wondering. (laughs) But even worse is a person who is happy to create a problem and is unwilling to be part of the solution. Think of the roommate who is happy to clean out the fridge and fill up the sink, but won't clean the sink and fill up the fridge. That is the worst kind of roommate there could be. There should be laws against being that kind of roommate. Empties the fridge, fills the sink, but won't ever help in the reverse. That was not autobiographical, okay? These religious leaders loved to make problems and not be part of the solution. They loved making complex and complicated laws because it gave them a sense of authority and importance. We love to make laws because it reminds me that I'm in charge. And they love to make laws because it gave them a sense of what I do is really significant. People have to look to me to know what to do. And these laws were so numerous and so elaborate that it was as if the common Israelite of Jesus' day was teleported through a time machine back into Egypt and was living under the burden of Pharaoh. Listen to this from Exodus chapter 5. You are no longer, this is Pharaoh speaking, You are no longer to supply the people, the Israelites, with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Do not reduce their quota. They are lazy, and that is why they are crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to these lies. So this imagery here that Jesus gives, they love to tie up heavy burdens and lay them on the people and aren't willing to lift one finger. He intends for us to look at these religious leaders and see them as being coming so corrupt that it is as if 
a new Pharaoh has risen up and is now demanding bricks and denying straw. That he's laying these heavy burdens on these people and he's not willing to allow them to, to others to help them lift this burden. The law was given by God to guide people on the path of life, to show them the path of blessing. And yet they have turned the law into a blunt instrument and are beating people over the head with their laws. The law was given by God to point people to real freedom. This is where real freedom is. And yet they're using the law as a way of actually taking away people's freedom and demanding their submission and subservience to them. They love to add to and increase the burden of people and then condemn them when their backs break under the weight of it. It's the worst kind of leader. But praise be to God that Christ is so gloriously and graciously different. He is not the burden layer. He is the burden bearer. He lifts our burdens. He saw us carrying the griefs and sorrows of life in a fallen world, and he said, let me carry that for you. He saw us crushed under the guilt and condemnation of our sin, and he said, let me put that on my own shoulders. He saw us unable to perfectly fulfill God's perfect law, and he said, let me fulfill that for you. And he saw us helpless in obedience to God's law and hostile to it. And he said, let me give you my spirit and let me give you a new heart and write my laws on your heart so that you can walk in my ways. So while the religious leaders would not even lift a finger to help the people in their burdens, we have a savior who was lifted up on the cross to bear every single one of our burdens in our place. And as Christ has borne our burden, we ought to seek to bear the burdens of one another. As Christ has been to us, so we ought to seek to be towards one another. Recently, I was at Home Depot, and I went there to get a grill, and I thought I could do this myself. And I realized as I got to my vehicle that the grill was too heavy, and I was too lacking in strength. But I was too proud to ask for help. I didn't ask anyone. So I'm sitting there trying to shove it up, can't, can't get it in there, and I have uh, you know, a tank uh, as well, a propane. And then out of the blue, a gentleman comes up to me, just grabs one side, doesn't even ask. I think he knew I probably was too proud to ask. And he says, let me help you with that. And with that help, he helped me bear my burden and get it up into my trunk. That is a perfect illustration of how Christians should be in fellowship and communion with one another. That we look for those who seem like life has laid burdens on them that are too heavy for them to bear. And we walk up to them and we say, let me help you carry that burden. How can I help serve you and bear this burden with you? And the reason I say we almost have to just go up to them and be a little intrusive is because we are often too proud to let people know that we have a burden that is too heavy for us to bear. You know, there are many times where I, I found things out after the fact where I thought, you know, it would have been really good to know that so that we could have come in there and helped you with that in the time in which that was a heavy burden for you. And so there is a sense in which Christians should have a godly intrusiveness which says, let me help you bear that burden. Now, let's not you know, get crazy with it. You know, we, we don't want to respect people's boundaries, but there is a level to which we look for burdens and we just say, I'm going to bear them. I'm going to help them with them. So false shepherds love to lay burdens on others. Christ's disciples love to help others carry their burdens. Well, finally... Jesus warns us against false shepherds because they are all show and no substance. So they're all talk and no walk. They're all burden and no blessing. And the, 
They're all show and no substance. Look at verse 5. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. I'm told in politics that there's a saying behind closed doors that goes like this. Never let a good crisis go to waste. And the relative of that statement in religion goes like this. Never let a good deed go unnoticed. Never let a good deed go unnoticed. And the religious leaders lived by this unwritten creed. They didn't have social media platforms from which they could broadcast their virtue signaling. So what they had was their religious paraphernalia. And they used that to display and broadcast their virtue. So phylacteries were these boxes that people would tie around their wrist or tie around their forehead. So when I went visited Israel a couple of years ago, you would see these uh, rabbis that had these ropes and strings tied around and there's boxes on both their wrists and their foreheads. And what they kept in there was scripture verses. So for example, from Deuteronomy 6, the Lord says that these people should take these words with them wherever they go. Well, they take this very literally and they literally made compartments where they could carry scripture with them. But they saw this as an opportunity to advertise their virtue. So the the ruling principle was the bigger the box, the better the Christian or the better the religious leader. Well, then fringes, or some translations might say tassels, are these decorative threads that they had at the end of their garments. In Numbers 15, Moses tells the people that they're to add these threads, these tassels, onto their garments as emblems and reminders to them that they're to walk in and follow after God's commandments, not the nations. So these were a good thing. Well, they were turned into religious paraphernalia by which they could publicly, publicly advertise their virtue. And the working principle was the longer the tassel, the longer the record of obedience. So they had these long tassels that followed them, almost like, you know, think of like a bride's wedding dress. They were falling behind them, and they were advertising to everyone, wow, that person really cares about the commandments of God. They really follow God. But it was all show and no substance. They excelled at something that, if we're honest with ourselves, we all struggle with to a degree. They were better at and more focused on appearing righteous than they were at actually being righteous. They were good at appearing to be holy more than they were at actually being holy. Think of it like a good real estate photographer. A good real estate photographer knows all the tricks and all the tools to doctor up pictures and and videos of a house to make the house appear to be the most amazing, astounding house that you've ever seen. And a lot of people these days in this real estate market, especially coming here to Florida, are seeing houses sight unseen. So there's a lot of incentive in making the house appear as good as it can be. And so we can excel at putting on the right face going through the right motions to appear as if we have it all put together, as if we're you know, perfectly emotionally stable people who are doing fantastic and fine. Well, what is it that feeds this unhealthy desire to appear more than to be? And I think it's a combination of two extremes. It's a combination of pride on the one hand and insecurity on the other. We, we can be driven by pride which can turn religion into a sort of sport and competition. Who can get to the top? Kind of king of the hill type of game. C.S. Lewis describes the competitive nature of pride this way. He says, Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich 
or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than the next person. If everyone else equally became rich or clever or good-looking, there would nothing. There would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison, the competition that makes you proud. The pleasure of being above the rest. Once that element of competition has gone out, all pride has gone. So pride says, I'm going to turn this into a competition sport because I want to be looked at as better than others. So that's what can drive us. On the other extreme, we can be driven by insecurity. And insecurity turns religious deeds and devotions into an opportunity to make us feel like we're making up for what is lacking in our life. So listen to this from Sinclair Ferguson. He describes this motivation of insecurity with the religious leaders. The real trouble with the heart of the hypocrite is that they do not know God as their heavenly father. They are insecure before God and therefore seek their security before the public eye of watching people. They are disingenuous before others because they have no genuine relationship with God. And I would add to that. They're in the public, always seeking to build up their sense of self-righteousness because they know nothing of the free gift of righteousness that is in Christ and Christ alone. So because of that insecurity and out of that insecurity, they're constantly using the public to overcome and alleviate that sense of insecurity. And yet the gospel is the great surgeon's scalpel that cuts these two false motivations out of the heart. To our competitive pride that wants to be more righteous and more holy than others, the gospel humbles us to the dust and says, you will never be good enough. You can try all you want. You will never be good enough. In fact, it humbles us even more by saying, your attempts to be good enough are so pathetically insufficient that it actually required the death of the sinless Son of God to pay for your sin. And your attempts to be righteous on your own are so offensive to a holy God that it required the death of the sinless Son of God to pay for your self-righteousness. The gospel humbles us to the dust in our pride. That's why we're going to sing in a little bit, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss, and pour contempt on all my pride. But what about our insecurity? Our insecurity, which is desperately in search of approval. With our pride, God humbles us to the dust. But in our insecurity, the gospel to a degree actually exalts us to the heavens and says, in Christ, you have all the approval, all the favor that you could ever ask for or imagine. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon says. Dear believer, now that you are justified, you can enjoy the privileges you might have had if you had never sinned once. All the blessings you would have had if you would have kept the law perfectly and more are yours because Christ has perfectly kept the law for you. All the love and acceptance that perfect obedience could have ever earned from a father are yours in your heavenly father because Christ was perfectly obedient on your behalf. And he has credited all of his merits, all of his righteousness to your account. So false shepherds are precisely all show because they have no substance to them. They swim in a shallow pool of self-righteousness, 
of public accolades and public admiration. It is a very shallow pool to swim in that. And yet, when we swim in the deep substance of the gospel, we need not put on a show for others. We need not live by the accolades, the likes, and the dislikes of others because we have the unshakable, immovable approval of a heavenly Father in our Lord Jesus Christ. And on top of that, when it comes to obedience, true obedience, we know the paradox of genuine obedience. It goes like this. When we take least notice of our own good deeds, the Father takes most notice of them. When we take the least notice of our own good deeds, the Father takes most notice of them. Which is why to the Pharisees he would say, when you do your good deeds to be seen by others, that's all the reward you'll ever get. Because that's what you're going after, and that's what you'll get. But when we do it for the glory of God, we have a reward that will far outstrip the accolades of man. So Jesus, our good shepherd, warns us, his sheep, against false shepherds. Ones that are all talk and no walk, all burden and no blessing, all show and no substance, so that we would take care who we follow, who we imitate, and how we lead others. Let's pray. Our great and almighty Heavenly Father, we thank you for our good shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was the perfect character that we could never be, and who is for us the great example that we can follow, knowing that he leads us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake, that he leads us beside still waters, that he walks us even through the valley of the shadow of death, a place in which there are many false shepherds, many people who would take us into the counsel of the ungodly, into the way of sinners. So may we be attentive to the shepherd's voice and may we surround ourselves with those who have much trace of the good shepherd in their own character. And Lord, make us more like Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.